Welcome back to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from CityCo, and we're continuing with our series of podcasts around cultural venues. I'm at the Lowry Theatre in always sunny Salford, and actually, after a dreadful start to the day, the sun is out, the sky is blue. It's rather beautiful, actually. Uh, talking, to, talking to Julia Fawcett, the chief exec here. The Lowry is 18 years old? 18, yes. Which is hard to believe but continues to thrive with its mix of theatre, dance, galleries, and a number of associated businesses, which we'll get into. Um, first of all, can you give us a bit of the history of the last 18 years, how, how the Lowry has evolved? Wow, that's quite an ask. I know, how, it's a huge one. We've only got, got half an hour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, okay. So, in a nutshell, um, 18 years ago, Millennium Project, derelict docklands, not much happening around and about the dock spaces, no plans, no development. And um, Millennium Lottery funding became available. The city of Salford bid for funding to create something and they didn't know what they were going to create. It was going to be this amazing emblem for their hopes and dreams for the city. And so they put the bid through. Everybody said, you've not got a chance. There's no way who's going to build an opera house in the middle of these derelict docks. And they managed to pull it off and it happened and we opened. We were one of the first lottery projects to open. And then, um, as I say... One of the few to survive, I would say. It's been, so uh, yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's been quite an interesting journey since then, but we're still here, still thriving, and you only have to look out the window, Vaughan, to see, you know, that we've played our part somewhat in all of this amazing development round and about us. So... At that, when did you join? Did you join before the building was put up? No, I, I joined about two years after the building had opened. But, you know, funnily enough, and totally coincidentally, I um, grew up just over the road, um, but had moved away long before that. So came back to Salford to find this incredible, amazing building and organisation slap bang in what would have been my backyard. Which is rather lovely. Um how has it changed and evolved over that period? I mean, particularly over your 16 years uh, in terms of programming, in terms of um, balance between, I guess, gallery spaces, theatre spaces. There's more stuff, I guess, because of digital going on actually out in the lobby areas and around yeah. the place as well. Um, how's that developed? Um, how have you sort of considered what worked, what didn't work, uh, changed and adapted what's been going on here? Well, a lot of the change has been driven by audiences and what people want to see, how they want to experience and get involved in art. So I think the programme is unrecognisable. So when we first opened, um, it was very much about the received product programme coming in from all over the world, which is fantastic. But there was less of a blend or a balance of, you know, projects that were being locally um, grown or driven, things that were happening reflecting our local communities, artists from Greater Manchester getting involved in the programme. So there's a huge journey, I think, for the organisation to really find a way of blending all of those aspirations to be here in the city of Salford, in Greater Manchester, with an internationally driven programme, but that reflects artists and stories from our location. So I think that's the biggest change. There are some through lines that still remain, so the commitment to... Um, certain genre that otherwise wouldn't particularly be reflected in Manchester. So dance, for example, and contemporary dance, really big um, strand of our work. And that you will be able to follow right back to day one. 
digital, completely new in terms of our programming, both in terms of the external work that we do, the festivals and so on, but also the way it's, you know, digital is actually happening within the building, um, you know, in every space, the theatres, the galleries, the installation you'll have seen today just as you walk through the front door. So I feel like it's a much more vibrant organisation, much more vibrant um, building. And I think that's been largely driven by our audiences. And has the audience itself changed? Has it been a sort of organic as you slightly change the programming to match the audience, then the audience keeps changing as well over, the, over that period? Yeah, I think we've been really lucky. When we when you look back over the whole of the history of, of, of the Lowry, we've always had this mixed programme. And that mixed programme has been a massive blessing because it's brought loads of people into the building um, to experience different parts of what we do. So I think our um, challenge really has been to look for new audiences or even to look at ways of how we can help those people who are coming in, I don't know, to see um, one of our exhibitions to experience what's happening in the theatres and vice versa. So I think it's been about growing audiences from that base rather than needing to kind of drive a, a, a big initiative to get people over the door. People always step over our threshold. I think that's the fascinating thing is when you've got so many different strands of activity, if you can get people in for and we were looking at Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake um, coming up, or if you can get them in for the Birmingham Royal Ballet's Swan Lake, which is a very different type of Swan Lake, um, but then get them interested in what's going on in the galleries. Um, I mean, it's it's great for your visitors and your returning numbers as much as anything else, but actually, rather than thinking of, oh, we're going to have to change the entire programming to go for different demographics, you've got so so many different things going on, it's about cross-pollinating across all those different streams isn't that, it that's true and i think it's also how artists want to work too so i don't think artists are as um familiar with a kind of a career that sees them in one silo or another and audiences don't want to experience work in that way so when you think about um choreographers people like akram khan he's a very visual artist he works in many different disciplines he works in digital choreography he's a dancer so it felt incredibly natural to us as a venue that has a visual arts program as well as theatres to commission him to work on a visual arts exhibition and within the context of that exhibition that was the first the first time he'd ever worked in that way there was a live performance element that he also choreographed so the audiences that came in and experienced that exhibition left that exhibition and walked a few steps over into the lyric theatre and then saw one of his big huge dance pieces dash you know so that kind of blended approach from an artist's perspective I think is a real change but audiences love it and I guess it's but it's it's tracked some of the changes that actually happened within art forms as well um as as you say artists don't want to work in in one discipline and I mean even something like like dance which I go to a lot of dance shows and it's been very noticeable that in the last two decades you very rarely see a dance show that doesn't have video or digital or something of the modern type now. Um, and actually, the older theatres that would put on dance have probably had to sort of retro um, fit all the facilities to be able to do that. But you've always been designed as a sort of multimedia spaces mm. and, and able to do all that range of different things, mm. which is a Abs- huge advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, dance is a really good example of where you see artists embracing those opportunities and that technology. I'd say probably more so than in other art forms, maybe more so than in theatre and drama. So it's been great to be able to um, provide opportunities for that kind of work to be seen and experienced. So I'm thinking 
talking about some of the dance work that we've had in the um, outdoor spaces that's relied massively on digital. Um, we couldn't have done that 10 years ago. The technology wouldn't have been there and artists wouldn't have been ready to have, you know, sort of embraced the, the risk that that new technology would bring. So, yeah, I think it's been a fantastic experience to be here at the heart of Media City. I think has probably given us more opportunities to work with different types of partners and organisations that have helped us sort of embrace some of those new opportunities. And then, I mean, you talked about how this was, I guess, the first institution in the Keys, really. It was the first, the first new building in the Keys. And um, at the root of so much what, of what's happened over the, ne- the last two decades. Um, but as the area around has changed, as the outlet mall and then the museum of the river went up and then... Uh, obviously the BBC came. I mean, how has that affected the change in what you do? Has it just provided you with more opportunities and a a sort of bigger um, audience that's actually within walking distance for the first time rather than having to come for a while? Um, Can you talk us through sort of how that's affected you as as the developments happened around you? I think it's a work in progress. So when when, um, the Lowry first opened, we were entirely reliant on people coming to see a piece of work and then they would leave and there was no sense of a destination Um, always an ambition to see a destination develop around us Um, as as media city has come along and new partners have arrived on the keys it's provided a springboard for audiences to come along to see other things and also to you know, join a, join our, come into our building and see what we're doing, but at the same time go over to the museum or go over to Media City and experience a broader destination offer. But at the same time, it's also brought us, as you've said, new audiences. You know, so the first thing that we did when the BBC first arrived was established a relationship with them where there were opportunities for them to come over and, and see the building and see what we did. So it's multifaceted in, in the opportunities, but it's also... A challenge. So, you know, in some ways, we're still quite an immature destination. You know, we're still working on um, joining up the infrastructure, joining up some of the kind of the big opportunities to do set pieces between the various partners. Um, But I look across the way to places like South Bank or international destinations, and you see those things can take 20, 25, 30 years. We're we're probably halfway on, on that journey there's still much more to be done and there's much more of an opportunity. Nighttime economy particularly, I think is still a big thing that we're really hoping to see develop over the next three to five years. And I guess one of the opportunity of having a cultural venue at the heart of that as you develop the nighttime economy is you don't start from the prospect of bars and drinking as what that nighttime economy has to consist of. You've got something else there as well, which is actually, I mean, it's quite interesting what's happening in um, Manchester city centre as we move to having more family orientated evening economy yeah. attractions but you still obviously you rely very much on the wet trade which is yeah. you know has its own issues uh, can be successful and has its own issues as well I mean um, slightly flippantly how do you how do you actually describe the Lowry are you a theatre with a gallery a gallery with theatre or are you an art centre or are you just the Lowry well, well I think I think we we are an art centre um I think we do describe ourselves as such if we need to explain what it is we do um but I'm very comfortable with just simply referring to us as the Lowry and people I think know what what to expect in terms of that offer um I think the more more broadly that we look at promoting the work in, in terms of what we do the more necessary it is to explain who we are and what we do um but yeah I, I have no trouble in acknowledging our position as being a, as an art center 
And what about the link with LS Lowry? How do you how do you keep that going and keep that sort of legacy? You know, that is such an interesting part of um, the challenge and the opportunity, I guess. So, you know, LS Lowry is such a well-loved artist by many people and has a particular place, I think, in the kind of the history of, um, of our region. But at the same time, there's a kind of a perspective, I think, that is sometimes um, articulated by academics or curators in certain ways, that he has a particular place in in art history and has nothing more to offer. So I know that when people come into the building and experience the work, there are surprises always in the work that they find. They don't expect to see the most glorious, beautiful seascapes. They don't expect necessarily to see some of the portraiture um, and and the other thing which I think is is um, something that we see as a challenge is um, it's sometimes really hard um, for us to articulate just what an impact he's had on other far more contemporary artists, you know, really challenging artists, people like Paul Arego, um, who actually was taught for a time by Ellis Lowry. Um, you know, so very often artists know that, that he had some kind of an impact on their work, but they're not always as vocal about that. And actually it would help us place him in, in art history. So I think that's probably where we see our challenges in organisation. Is that a snobbishness thing, you think? If you ask my chairman, he would say yes. <laughs> um, I think it's just a, a misunderstanding, and I think it's a misunderstanding that was partly promoted by his own his own approach. He was such a an arch manipulator of his own narrative. You know, this notion of him being this sort of, you know, local guy who wasn't educated, not experienced at all in the arts, utterly rubbish. He was probably one of the earliest and most faithful um, artists in our region to go backwards and forwards to experience the opera and the ballet. He absolutely loved the ballet. He was a frequent attender um, at the Royal Opera House. You know, one of the um, sets of images that we have in our galleries was um, a piece of work that was inspired by a production here in Manchester of Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an Author. He was absolutely obsessed with this one actor and he painted her image over and over and over again. So this notion of this ill-educated guy out collecting rents, therefore his work is utterly naive and uninformed by what was happening around him in the artistic community. It's just rubbish. But he played to that narrative. I am a simple man, he said. So that's very modern, a very modern thing to do, isn't it? To play exactly. out that problem. So, so that's how he's often seen. And the narrative then took, took hold. So, um, so part of what we do is actually to help tell that story and place him in a different way in art history so you know really important exhibitions along the way so the the recent exhibition that Tate did I think helped massively um being able to bring out from our archives and others some of the unseen work um I think was also helpful but it's an on you know it's an ongoing challenge I think what's really interesting is actually starting to see collectors around the world begin to become really focused on his work, which wasn't the case five or 10 years ago. So, you know, I recently met with a chap um, in New York who's got the most wonderful set um, the, of, of works. He's American, you know, no connection with our location. And, and it's really good to start to see that reputation extend beyond, certainly beyond the Northwest, but certainly beyond the UK also. And I, and I guess that then that interest in opera, dance and so on makes it incredibly appropriate that... His name should be carried on in a place that focuses so much on dance and 
other forms of culture as well. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, that's part of the legacy. You know, there are times when you think, does that always help? If you're talking to the world um, about the arts organisation called the Lowry, you know, in, in sometimes people will misunderstand what that might mean. If they understand the work of the artist, they might have a view on that and therefore might think that that's somehow... I think it's all factory pictures yeah, or something. absolutely follows over into the theatre and, and other aspects of what we do. So it's... Um, it's it's a real challenge and a, a real sort of mission that we have as an organisation to have that work and that artist appropriately positioned. It's an interesting one. I mean, over the 18 years, I guess, it went, as you start, um, the Lowry Centre is almost entirely identified with L.S. Lowry because that's what the name Lowry means, yeah, particularly yeah. in the Northwest. Uh, but now I think you're probably at a point where for an awful lot of people it has its own independent life and yeah. if you say Lowry probably people in Greater Manchester at least if not yeah. if not more widely would think of the theatre and, and the centre rather than they think of the painter which yeah. is an interesting change so you, you, you sort of work in parallel yes. but have developed your own identity along that along yeah that I, think, I think that's true um taking a step back from the artist side of things um to to the business side of things um can you just talk us through your sort of your major re- revenue streams um how you balance those and, and that classic question uh, for anyone in culture particularly in the current climate um, which is sort of how you balance the needs of, of driving that revenue with the need to also be artistically relevant and artistically interesting mm. um, I, I think that's such a relevant question so the business model that we have is quite um, a challenge so we have about five percent of our total funding um, coming from public um, support, so from the Arts Council and from our local authority, Salford. So that's incredibly important to us and valuable, but it's 5% of our total budget. Um, that's always been the case. I mean, the figures have fluctuated somewhat over the years, but but largely um, we opened with very um, low levels of um, subsidy and therefore the need to balance the books, even what used to be referred to as the halcyon golden days of high levels of public, we never benefited So you never went that. through a crash on that basis? Well, that's really. the interesting thing, isn't it? So I think our crash came sooner. We kind of had this existential crisis round about day one of opening <laughs> which was kind of like we've got this fantastic amazing wonderful building it's statue. Now, how are we going to pay for it a million people through in that first year came into experience what 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 the organization then was doing you know obviously before my time so i can take no credit for the million visitors but you know they were doing something incredibly wonderfully right but they couldn't get the numbers to stack up because we were not subsidised at anything like the level that was required to maintain that that kind of programme. So what then happens is um, you have to look at ways of driving the income streams and focusing on the costs. So it was a re- it sounds really simple in the telling. You had to really focus on that. I think it was an unusual model in the sector at the time. I think it was. Um, it was a very entrepreneurial model. It gave a real focus to commercial sustainability and gave it an equivalence, not a primary place within the organisation, but it had to have an equivalence. So we massively focused on additionality of income streams, so conference and events, catering and other um, ancillary income streams, but also new business opportunities like growing our ticketing business. And in all of that, what we were able to do is to say, well, if we can be as commercial as we possibly can around those kind of income streams, 
all of the benefit of that then gets released into the artistic mission and the core ambitions that we have as an organization. So, so that kind of was the business model that we introduced, certainly in the time that I've joined the organization. And how you clarify about uh, how you um, drive that ambition is that every year you start with the premise of what it is artistically you want to achieve and then you look at what you drive commercially to make that happen. So really simple example. We were really fortunate and um, fantastic um, benefactor. We, we had a huge um, opportunity with a philanthropist, some public funding to bid for some capital. Um, we upgraded our restaurant and we focused on energy and efficiency within the building. Um, it was a big capital project for the organisation. It was ring-fenced in our management accounts that the funding realised on an ongoing basis, the revenue improvements from that would be ring-fenced for an artistic development fund. So, so that's kind of the way that you do it. It's a twin focus on both things. As a sector, we don't always get that balance right. Um, it isn't easy, so it's an ongoing tension. You know, the commercial and the artistic, it can be overly... It's reductive to say that people are at either end of the continuum, um, but it's true nonetheless that in an organisation like this with relatively low levels of subsidy, that dialogue, that tension, which I think is healthy, is every day. It's what we do every single day. So there's an assumption from everybody working on the commercial side of things, whether it's key tickets, wherever it is, yeah. there's an understanding that, yes, they may have targets, they may be being driven, but there is a purpose behind this Absolutely. it's it's not that money isn't disappearing Absolutely. i'm just this is a really dweebious question and Go probably on. everybody listening will will uh, <laughs> uh, tune out but it's something i'm quite interested in because it's a process that city co is going through at the moment as well is is that written into the relationship between the artistic company and the uh, commercial uh, presumably there's a separate commercial company or is it Yes, it what there is, or a number of commercial companies, but is we it, don't see it that way. Okay, uh, but is I, I mean uh, just, in governance, in, in, in terms, governance yes. terms, yes, yes. Um, so what I'm asking is, is so is that um, that all profits will be then returned to a parent company or however for artistic endeavours? Absolutely, is that written into all the M and A's so that that is understood as part of the governance process? Absolutely. I told you that was a dweebish question. Yeah. I'm Ab quite, inter quite interested yeah. in that. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, and we have we we have a, a kind of a board that understands that and has been through that process with us. So an absolute rigour on the commercial operation because they know what that then unlocks in terms of what we can then do artistically. And that's why you ne you you will never see a growth in I don't know profitability, for instance, because if we have a business plan that shows increasing finance. Um, commercial performance next year then that will unlock the ability to then look at stretching the amb ambition around the artistic program uh and i mean in terms of where you are now um are you i mean, I mean key tickets is you know i, I think probably 95 percent of people if not more using it have no idea that it has any link to yes. larry at all i would yeah. i would assume um but are you still looking to develop things like that that actually have sort of their own existence and their own ability to churn quite a, quite a large amount of revenue? I think it's it's a balance 
um, I think I should um, begin by saying that my chairman's Rod Aldridge, who founded Capita, so the king of outsourcing. So we always have quite a, a good challenge and a good debate around what it is that we're doing commercially and whether we are the right people to do that. So I think it's a balance. And I think the balance for me is this with key tickets. It's core competency. As an arts organisation selling theatre tickets for our own programme, we had to develop the core competencies. Um, we had to invest in the technology and the skills. So it was an extension of, of something that we consider to be a core competency. I think when you go beyond that core competency, then the risk reward element of the discussion com comes into play. So I think the short answer is yes, we would like to extend and grow key tickets further. We think it's got the capacity to do that, but we're always looking at it from the perspective of you know, running an art centre is pretty risky in its own right. What's our appetite and our tolerance for further risk? So yeah. that's that's a, a, a very much an ongoing and live discussion. It was an interesting conversation um, with The Palace, which is the first podcast in this series, um, talking about the difference between in subsidised theatre and uh, they're owned by Ambassadors mm. Group, obviously, um, the, the difference in attitude towards something like bars. So th the way that you upsell in a purely commercial environment yep. uh, is very, very different. And possibly the subsidised sector could learn something from that yes. because you need every penny. Yes. You're, you're not earning a huge amount from the shows that are going through because the production companies earn most of that. So you've got to generate from yeah. programme sales, from you know all, all the money through the bars, the coffees, yeah. or whatever, and becomes a very well-oiled machine yes presumably those sort of conversations are also the ones that you need to have Absolutely. as well all the time to, to constantly analyze how things work and, and what you can do to maximize revenue at every point absolutely and i think you know we, we we as a sector we have got a lot to learn from operators like atg in that in that regard i think through recent years because of what's happened with shrinking funding the sector has become much more alive and commercial and open to, to those um, different types of, of, of operation. But certainly not very long ago, it was seen to be, it would be described as non-core. So it would not be in any way untypical for organisations to outsource all of that ancillary activity and, and de-risk their organisation. And then what they would sacrifice in return for that was a smaller return on, on, on income that was being generated through their offering in their building. So I think it's been a shift and it's been a recent shift. ATG are, are good examples of that, but I think it's what we've been doing since day one. So we, we don't only focus on the bars, we also look at the food offer, the conferencing offer, you know, as an unusual venue, the combined income that we generate from food and beverage and conferences generates more contribution to our artistic programme than our combined public um, subsidy. So it's an important element of our business. It's not an also ran. It's a core part of what we do. And it's also a core part of the, the visitor experience. So for those two reasons, there has to be an equivalence in attention whilst not leaving a focus on what it's all about, which is the work. Yeah, and I think that's still attention, though. It's interesting. I mean, certainly um, when we were running Herbis, part of the question there was we took we took the catering back in-house, launched, launched a restaurant. Yeah. Um, and had to learn very, very quickly about, you know, I've said this in the previous podcast, yeah. you know, coming in on the Monday morning, looking at precisely what the what the gross margin and net margin yeah. was in the restaurant in the previous week, looking at what changes we had to do, which generated a lot of cash at the time. I think you're right. It would have been, while other galleries were taking the decision to outsource that because they knew they had a guaranteed yeah. 50,000 or 60,000 yeah. or whatever it was, yeah. 
um, you know, not risking the downside, yeah. but also n- not risking for the upside. Yeah. And I and I think I still see that a lot. You know, a lot of people do a very good job of out- outsourcing, um, but I think that is still such a attention and the challenge. Even in a period where we're ten years into cuts, I guess in, yeah. in public subsidy, you still don't see possibly as, as much um, knowledge around how to maximize your revenues in yeah. this sector as, as perhaps you should do after yeah. this experience i would agree i mean i know that you know we we talk a lot as a sector about sustainability but i don't know whether we're really um focused on it as a way of addressing what's coming down the line in terms of even further cuts in um local authority and arts council funding um i think i'm probably a bit more um fortunate in that i i have a chairman who is so focused on outsourcing imagine, yeah. that you know the, the, the kind of way in which that he looks at it is prove it to me, prove that this is the right way for us to maximise the benefits for Larry without risking the house. And um, and that keeps us on our toes. So in a heartbeat, if what we looked at in terms of evidence said the best thing for us to do would be to outsource, we, we, would, we would need to seriously consider that. But at the moment, I look at it like this is our retail, this is our footprint. We want to maximise every aspect of what we do within this building in order to support the programme. And, and and I think, you know, that I've got a team that gets that. So I'm really lucky. Yeah, and also I think as a chief exec, you want to feel that you're actually in some control over what's going on. Whereas if you're in an outsourced contract, the lawyers are more in control. <laughs> Every time you, you have an argument, it needs to go back to legal and it ends up costing... Uh, <sighs> got burnt and too many yeah, scars for that. Let's um, step back to almost, the, I guess, the other angle. I mean, you talked yeah. about, obviously, um, being born very close to here yeah. or, or grown up very close to here. Um the relationship to Salford residents, I know obviously um, knowing uh, Paul Dennett and the mayor of Salford yeah. pretty well, um, the pride that he has, the pride that Salford CC have generally in in the Lowry and then in the Keys and how the Keys has developed. Um, talk us through how you keep that relationship with the local community. Um, what do you do with the local community? How do you make sure that it doesn't feel, which, you know, to be honest, it does a little bit sometimes in the Keys feel that these the, the residents have been sort of parachuted in from outside and, and not quite, literally, um, and and not necessarily terribly involved with the community. For, for an art centre, that would be absolutely dire if, if you had that lack of relationship, wouldn't it? So how, how do you keep that relationship? You, you, it's, it's an everyday thing. It's what you do every single day. So it's not what you do as a project and, you know, next week or next year. It's what you do every single day. Um the, the media city angle, this thing about, you know, incomers and the benefit of media city not being felt around the city, you know, the, there are always things that, that can be done to improve that. But I think the story goes back further than that. The story goes back to, um, you know, me growing up here in this location. I always wanted to act. I wanted to be an actor. Um, I didn't have a family background that would have made that kind of opportunity within my reach. Um, Educationally, it wasn't a great place to, you know, experience other opportunities. Um, And ultimately, I was lucky and I did have the chance to go off and go to university and I wouldn't have come back to Salford and I've always been really open and upfront about that. Family, friends here, yes, there wasn't a place for people who wanted to work in the arts in Salford. So if if you look at that context, you know, back in the, the 80s, has that context changed much now? Well, I think the thing that made my opportunity, and loads of people like me, made my opportunity real, 
were teachers and people who were able to provide that kind of input to kids who weren't able to get it from home or, or in other ways. So when the Lowry was um, created, it was all along um, created on the basis of these three ambitions, you know, the, 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 the Ellis Lowry work, the theatres, international ambitions, and the community ambition, the ambition that it would be rooted here in the city of Salford. That's been a massive challenge for us. And it is in truth for any arts organisation. You look at arts participation figures that the Arts Council produce or DCMS, it isn't a good story. Um, so we all have to work at it incredibly hard. When I um, joined the organisation, um, we had a lot of work to do with that local community, even before Media City, which is why I say Media City is the latest illustration in this challenging story. So... At the time that the Lowry opened, the local community felt it wasn't for them. The programme wasn't for them. It was for posh people. The tickets were too expensive. There was that, that, that genuine kind of you know, challenge around how you work with people in that community who don't feel that you're for them. And I don't, I don't have the answers to it all, but I think one of the, the ways in which we try to answer it is that we haven't gone anywhere, we've not gone away, the programmes that we run, we still run now. So we've had shrinking public funding, we've had, you know, some really difficult financial challenges over a number of years to deal with. We have not ever reduced or backed away from our community program and work and and it's only that turning up every day and and putting out that program so the kind of things that we do I mean just last weekend um we took the roundabout um tent which is this amazing pop-up theater and um, it's not a tent it's a beautiful theater have you have you seen I it, seen it. No, no, it's, yeah. it's about a quarter of a million quids worth of um, tech kit in it so it's a really lovely space um, and every year we take it out into a particular ward within Salford and it's a joint thing. So we can take some of our programme out with the tent, but we also work for six months or a year in advance with that very local community for them to programme work into the tent. So last week it was in Oddsall. It was in Oddsall Park. Um, and it was a, this amazing mix of really wonderful stuff that the community had done. You know, a fantastic um, piece that had been de uh, developed by local kids called Oddsall Lost. And they had to imagine um, Oddsall was no longer there. It didn't exist and they had to recreate it. And it was kind of like a Bake Off theme, you know, all the ingredients that they'd need to develop to put it back into the heart of Salford and you know just listening to those our kids perform that piece and and those those kids articulate what it meant to grow up in Salford and how how wonderful and challenging it was and having that moment in that tent in front of a completely packed audience was 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 fantastic so my point is just simply this you know you don't give it up you don't as an arts organization say we're really you know oh we're facing a really tough budget next year we really love all of that community stuff and we really passionately believe in it, but we can't afford to do it. You have to make it a priority. So all of our programmes are multi-year long. So our programmes working with looked after children or young carers, they're six and seven years into, into their life. So it's not parachuting in and parachuting out. And it's sometimes accepting. It's not about coming into our building. It's not about coming in to see Matthew Bourne. That would be wonderful, but it's good enough for them to, you know, for people who live on our doorstep to understand that we are, we've got resources and things that we can bring out into that community. And if they want to come back into our building, amazing. But, but that's not the deal. It's not, it's not a quid pro quo in that way.
Um, I presume you have. Um, in terms of visitors, what percentage come from Salford within the within the local sort of a couple of miles radius of here? Not enough. So probably less than about twenty percent. But but you know we're geeks too. And um, we're super geeks when it comes to data. So not only do we know, do we know that figure from a Salford perspective, but we actually analyse it at a local ward level. So we can tell you, you won't be surprised, that there are certain wards in Salford where there's a huge take-up of tickets. Worsley. And there are wards where there's a real challenge. Um, Little Halton. You know, so when we look at how we develop audience development strategies or projects and work that we do, it isn't just looking at the city as a whole. It's really looking at it on a micro level. Because um, it'd be quite easy to rest, to rest, rest on your laurels and go, yeah, yeah, we've exactly. got Exactly, that, that's the point. Yeah. So we, we run a free and discounted ticketing scheme, scheme for everyone in Salford um, called Our Lowry. And every year when you know, we could give the headline figure and say it's got 22,000 members, isn't that fantastic? Last year we gave away 30,000 tickets to shows. But then if I told you how many of those tickets went to Little Halton or you know, other wards versus some of the, the, you know, the, the slightly more affluent wards, there would be a discrepancy and it's those things that we're still um, challenging and tackling. Um, looking forward then, how do you want to see the theatre and the organisation evolve over the next few years and then into decades as well? Yeah. Well, part of it's this external change in Manchester. So really exciting times, you know, even the last three to five years with home opening, um, you know, the changing um, strategy and focus that we're seeing at the ATG venues where, you know, really challenging contemporary work and dance and other art forms, you know, coming through. Um, I think the overall landscape in Manchester is changing and I think it's really important that we look at a way of using that opportunity to raise all the boats so we all need to lift our game. So I think I think that's really exciting. I'm seeing an increased level of kind of collaboration across venues, galleries, other institutions in the city. Um, you know, the, the combined authority is reaching out for the first time, beginning to work on a new cultural strategy for Greater Manchester, a new um, cultural steering group for Greater Manchester that's being brought together. So I think there's a, it feels like something shifted and unlocked where we kind of get the, we get the fact that culture is really important for us as a city, but we also get the fact there's a lot more we can do collaboratively. And, and now I think is where we're going to see the real gains in that. The factory is going to bring such a, an international world focus on the cultural offer in Manchester, which will be amazing. We've all got to make, got to make sure that what we're all doing plays its part in that ecology so it's a great week it's a great fortnight and a great offer um so i'm really excited about what that broader kind of change in landscape is going to bring for us specifically for us as an institution we've got big um development plans in terms of our building you know you, you'll see as you look out my window here we're locked by water on two sides and the wonderful mall and um, outlet mall um opposite us so so actually extending our space is quite a challenge. We've either got to go up or over the water. So um, we're working with a really exciting um, architect. We've been working with him for about um, 18 months now called Jamie Faubert. Um, he designed um, the new Tate St. Ives that yeah. was recently opened. So we've got a major piece of work around, around that, looking at extending our building. That's probably a five to 10 year ambition. 
In terms of programme, I think um, it's more about that blended approach to art form and making sure that what we do reflects the fact that we're here at the heart of Media City. And I think in terms of our um, community ambitions, it's just making sure that we keep on playing the role that we currently play in an environment where we're seeing key planks of support and partnerships falling away. So the closure of youth centres, the reduction of humanity courses being delivered within local schools. We as an art sector, we can't set you know, step into that space and um, compensate for all of those changes. So what is the cultural offer for young people growing up in our city and in Greater Manchester? And I think that's a key piece of work for us as an institution and for us as a sector that we need to really focus on. I think those are probably the two or three key things. And then just to keep... Nothing smaller now. Just to keep on selling the tickets and the cups of coffee, making sure we can keep the doors yes, open. Absolutely. Um, and, and more immediately then, within the next year, what are the big projects coming up? Okay, so um, in November in the galleries, we've got um, a, a, a kind of a different uh, emphasis for us. We're opening a pre-Raphaelite exhibition. But, you know, there's a context around that. And the context is that Ellis Lowry was obsessed by the pre-Raphaelites and um, they had a massive influence on his work. So it's looking at the pre-Raphs through the lens of L.S. Lowry. So I think that's going to be really interesting for us, something very different. Looking forward to that. And if that, um, you know, doesn't um, float your boat, in a couple of weeks we've got DJ Paulette opening a new exhibition in the galleries, which is going to be really um, fun. And then in the theatres, we've got some of our favourite um, artists and organisations visiting in the autumn. We've got, you know, the National Theatre's Macbeth coming, which is already, you know, going to looking like it's going to be one of the most popular um, shows that we'll have done um, in recent history in terms of the Shakespeare's, um, directed by Rufus Norris, who is a Manchester favourite. Yeah, um, and you've already mentioned Matthew Bourne in Swan Lake. And, you know, that's, a, again, a perennial favourite in terms of his particular repertoire. So, you know, big, big set pieces like that. And this is the 18th year, as you might have mentioned, I think you did at, uh, at the start of this conversation. The Lowry's been here for 18 years. So um, we celebrated with our Week 53 um, festival and a number of commissions. One of those commissions um, was Toast, the Nigel Slater piece. And um, that successfully um, transferred from here to Edinburgh and working with partners, we're now looking at a UK tour for that piece. So lots, lots of stuff to, to be um, thinking about. So do you feel now being 18 that you've come of age? That was the theme of the festival, <laughs> I'm sure, coming, yeah. up, coming of age. Do you have to ask that really, don't you? <laughs> well, Tra Tracy Emin said she didn't come of age until she's 33. Well, I don't think I'm going to come of age until I'm 63. So, yeah, no. leave it as long as you possibly can. Thank you to Julia. And as I said, we have a host of interviews with other cultural leaders coming up. If you've got any comments or ideas for things to cover in the future, you can talk to us on Twitter at CottonmouthMCR or through email on podcast at citygo.com. Cottonmouth Manchester is available on all good podcast services. Please leave us a review if you like what you hear. Hold up. 